Nobody lives there. Nobody can stay forever out on the ice. The continent of Antarctica is uninhabited by humans, save an elite group of scientists that descend on the sub-zero continent every year. Today's guest takes us on a journey to this alien atmosphere, to an outpost on the edge of the world. back to the Get Lost Podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Joe Sills. Today's guest is an Emmy-nominated director. He's an explorer who's captured warlords in the Congo, spiked to the edge of the Arctic Circle, kayaked from Alaska to the continental United States, and has seen his work featured on the cover of National Geographic magazine. Along the way, he's been a director for the crabbiest show on television, Discovery's Deadliest Catch, He's co-hosted Travel Channel's Lost in the Wild with friend of the show, King of Phillips. And he's documented the first modern opening of the tomb of Jesus Christ himself. (laughs) JJ Kelly, that's quite a resume. Welcome to the show. Oh, Joe, nice to meet you. I've been really enjoying going through, uh, you know, I've been listening to the show and it's been fun to kind of binge listen. You really get around the world too. So pleasure to meet you. Thank you so much. Um, you know, this thing kind of started as a side project uh, and a passion project a few years ago. And very recently, we were honored to receive an award for the best interview podcast of the year from Adweek. So I saw that. Congratulations. And rightly so. I like the different perspectives um, that you bring onto the show. And I, even last week, I live in New York and I liked listening last week. Um, to learn that there might be uh, Yetis or Bigfoots uh, just yeah. across the Hudson River from me. Well, there's a lot of weird stuff across the Hudson River from yeah, you. That's so true. That's I mean, true. And maybe it's just Bon Jovi. Yeah. yeah. He's just running around in the wild. Um, if you guys check out our, our recent New Jersey episode with Jay Kumar, he'll tell you all about the Bigfoot encounter he had in New Jersey. Uh, so JJ, welcome to the show. I want to talk to you about your life as an explorer because I think we have something in common here. Um, although obviously you've been around the world many more times than I have, we both sort of started out by putting our shit into the back of a truck and hitting the road. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, you know, kind of figuring out maybe that you don't fit in or not knowing exactly, you know, what you want to do in life. I know that, um, I was going to college, you know, go to college right after high school and you're going to do this job and, and, you know, you're going to have a family and you're going to live in the suburbs and, and, you know, that's going to be your path because that's what most people that I went to high school with did. Um, And, and I, that seemed like a a fun path and I was excited about it, but then I I went to school for the first year and it wasn't fulfilling me um, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought, yeah, I guess I'm supposed to go to school. I'm supposed to, you know, get this degree um, in this thing that I thought that I wanted to do. But as I'm actually doing it, like I figured I'm too young and I don't know what I want to do yet. So after my first year of college, I, I dropped out of college and I had a pickup truck. I had a Ford uh, little Ranger pickup truck with a topper on the back. Oh, yeah. Classic. They're great. They're great. <laughs> so I made a little camping setup in the back of the pickup truck where I had a plywood layer that I could sleep on and then I could put those little plastic totes underneath and I decided to drive up to Alaska 
You are like living van life, dude. Decades before Instagram. <laughs> very, very much pre-cell phone, pre-Instagram, um, and probably a lot less glamorous than uh, some of the van life that I've seen. So what was that like? I mean, you're, you're kind of out there on your own and there's no cell phones, so that sounds terrifying to me. Yeah, I mean, this was a while ago. This was probably well, 20 years ago. Um, so I, you know, didn't know exactly what I was going to do when I got up to Alaska. I knew that I wanted to be outside and that made me happy. And I, for whatever reason, growing up in Minnesota, I became enchanted with sea kayaking. I thought it was really cool. And I had this dream growing up in Minnesota that I wanted to kayak by a glacier, you know, one of those big pieces of ice the size of a school bus that breaks off the ice field and crashes into the ocean and, and splashes up. And for some reason, I just wanted to do that in a sea kayak. So when I made it up to Alaska, I got to this little outfitter, this place called Miller's Landing in Seward, Alaska. And I said, uh, hey, I'd love to be a kayak instructor. I've done some kayaking. <laughs> it's ridiculous when I say that. Had, you, some... had you actually done some kayaking? I, I did, yeah. I bought a kayak when I was 16, and I would go on the upper St. Croix River, um, which is just north of St. Paul, Minneapolis. It separates Minnesota and Wisconsin, and, but it's a very flat body of water. You know, there's no uh, icebergs crashing and you know, making huge tidal waves. So I asked them, I said straight up, you know, will you hire me as a kayak guide? And they said, no chance. Um, luckily, they had some work at the campground. They let me work there, um, driving a tractor a little bit, cleaning up dog shit, um, you know, <laughs> mowing the grass. And then eventually, like, I got to go on these kayaking trips and I would just be a grunt carrying equipment, um, you know, helping to get the kayaks in and out of the water, helping make sure the passengers were having a good experience. And then the next year, I went back and I got some formal training on how to be a sea kayak instructor. And then, you know, for summers after that, for the next five summers, I was a sea kayak instructor up in Alaska, taking people who'd always dreamed or wanted to go up to one of these massive icebergs and, and see them crash into the ocean. So I, I, for, for that small period of time, I'd achieved my dream. That's actually unreal because you go from having this sort of insane dream as a kid in Minnesota to like, now it's a daily thing and you're sharing your dream with people from all over the world. Yeah, I found it. I totally found it. Like I first went to school for um, broadcasting, which is kind of funny because that's actually where I ended up. Um, but I didn't go to school for broadcasting. You know, I, I make TV shows and commercials now, but I, I, I don't think I would be making the kinds of shows that I'm making now if I continued on that path in broadcasting. I think I, you know, would be, you know, maybe, I don't know if I'd ever achieve my dreams. You know, I think a lot of people in, in the, the media industry have aspirations of getting somewhere and they think that there's a, a, a strict path that you can follow, but you really have to take some chances. And I think that's what going up to Alaska was for me. This is the first time in your life where you take a chance. And obviously, looking at your resume, Alaska stuck with you because years later, you would find yourself directing a uh, Deadliest Catch, which is one of the most popular TV shows probably the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the legacy of that show is remarkable. I know people in the industry who started that show, and they're giants of television production today. I mean, that, that show has seen so many amazing captains and filmmakers that have gone out into the Bering Sea, and I was honored to, to go out. I mean, honored and <laughs> horrified probably at the same time um, to go out. Uh, during the winter for a pileo season up out of Dutch Harbor in Alaska. Wow, so when you're out there, are you on a boat or are you on a helicopter? I mean, what is that experience like? Yeah, um, it's really far. <laughs> you know, it probably goes without saying, but they go fishing um, in a quite remote part of the world. You know, it's so crazy. What I found remarkable is, you know, we here in the lower 48, that's where, you know, Alaskans would say that we live. We here in the lower 48 say that we've had Alaskan king crab. We have all seen it, you know, at the restaurants, Sunday nights, they have Alaskan king crab. Mm -hmm. Sells for $20, $25 a pound. That is not the king crab that these fishermen, the fishermen of the deadliest catch, are going to try to find. Okay. Those are farmed in Russia. What we're seeing is farmed in Russia, and it is a farmed type of king crab. When they go wild, they get much bigger. Um, the meat is much sweeter, and it is just much more of a 
tries to try to find the wild Alaskan king crab. And the crazy thing is that king crab is sold directly to Japan for the most part, and it sells for almost $100 a pound. Holy crap. So in order to get the crab from Deadliest Catch, you actually need to go to Japan. <laughs> it's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. The amount of effort you know, to, to be on one of these 150-foot boats going out into a cold, black, you know, death. It just, it, it just gives off the feeling that you should not be there any time that you're out in that, that open ocean. I remember, you know, I was feeling kind of cocky when I was out there and I wasn't getting that seasick and we'd been out maybe for four or five days and it's dark all the time. It's always cold and dark. But I was not seasick and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. We've only been out here for a week. I'm still uh -huh. mentally pretty sane. And we have these cameras that are all over the boat and they are meant to pick up the moments that we might miss. These fixed cameras that roll 24 hours a day. If you've ever seen the show and somebody gets smacked in the head by a crane that's coming through or one of the crab pots, chances are it was a fixed camera that caught that. And then we try to jump in and try to tell the story. Sometimes you're lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time, but you can really en enhance your chances of getting the story by having these cameras everywhere. So I'm uh -huh. feeling pretty cocky, pretty confident. And there's this one camera, they call it the, the God camera, that sits up on the top of the mast. And we're in not huge seas, but maybe 25-foot seas. And you have to climb up this thing, and you're really you're climbing hand over hand for about mm, five feet, and you're holding on to the mast. And then you have to take the other hand with a little rag, a little chamois, and take some Windex and try to de-ice that God camera up there. No, no. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm talking to my buddy, and, and he, he's like, eh, that camera's kind of, you know, you can't see what's going on, right? It's just full of ice. And I said, I can fix that. And he said, I don't know if you should do that right now. And I thought, I was, like I said, I was really confident. I got up there, and then as I was hanging on this mast, I felt the boat start to fall down one of these 25-foot waves. And I look, and I see the next wave coming, and it is just lifeless and black and it is coming right towards me. And I, I held on with everything that I had. And then we finally went down that wave and we started to bounce before we got to the next one and I shimmied down that thing and I went back inside and I oh, never took man. a chance like that again. But it is insane, the amount of effort that these guys go to to get this crab. It's so there, there's a moment there where you just knew you were going into the sea. I knew that, yeah, we were gonna try to ride this out and that there's a chance that this wave once the bow hits the wave, that, that it's going to splash up towards me and it's going to be icy. You know, the crazy thing is you see on the show that the boats are all full of ice and the fishermen have to come out and they have to chip the ice away. Well, it's not actually that cold. You know, it's cold. I grew up in Minnesota, so I, I say it's not really cold, but it only has to be below 32 degrees for a mist from the ocean to turn into ice when it hits the boat. Right. So, you know, be sliding around out there. I remember, like I said, we had those fixed cameras, and my job was to note anything exciting that happened on those fixed cameras. And when there was ice on the deck, and the boat was sloshing from side to side, and the fishermen were, the fishermen were out there, they would fall. <laughs> it's like they would take the nastiest falls every two or three minutes. And I remember looking and being like, eh, that one's okay. And then someone <laughs> would really go down. I'm like, oh, that's a good one. I'd write it down. <laughs> you write like a timestamp, like when did this happen? It's like, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, JJ, that's pretty incredible experience. And today, speaking of ice, we want to talk to you about what I guess is the iciest place on the planet, and that's Antarctica. Uh, it's a place you visited several times over the course of a summer, and you spent a significant amount of time there. Uh, and we've never, ever talked about Antarctica on this show, probably because... There's nobody there, so... <laughs> Not many. Not Tell many us, people there. what the hell were you doing in Antarctica, and why were you there so much? Um, walk us through this whole expedition that you had down there. Yeah. Antarctica is a crazy place. You know, more people will, well, you know, pre-COVID, more people would go to the Super Bowl than would go to Antarctica in any given year. It's, it's very remote, very rare. There's no one that lives down in Antarctica. There are people that visit Antarctica, mm -hmm. they're scientists and explorers, but nobody lives there. 
And I know of a handful of ways that you can get down to Antarctica, but I would say it's as close of an experience as you're gonna have on this planet of what it feels like to get into space travel because everything there is completely foreign. You can breathe the air, but, but that's about it. Um, so I had the chance to go down there for National Geographic and because it is so strange and surreal and no one lives down there, National Geographic wanted to know what are the visitors doing when they're down there? What are the explorers doing? What are the scientists doing? What is a day in the life of someone that is deployed to Antarctica like? Okay. So they sent just a small handful of people down there because the crazy thing is it's really hard to get a spot in Antarctica. And if you send a filmmaker down, you're kicking a scientist out. So those spots are very coveted. So to make the entire series, the six hours for National Geographic, there were only six of us, and they kind of spread us out across the continent on these little missions to try to capture stories, and then they would pool all that together into the series that ultimately um, came out through National Geographic. So you go down as, what, a one or two man crew, one or two person crew? Kind of a, a one person crew. I mean, you need to be fully self-sufficient and there is no camera store when you're down there, obviously. There's no, there's no, I need another one of these, or my thing broke, can you send me one of these? That does not happen. In fact, the TV show had to buy all of our camera equipment. Usually you rent it, but we're gonna be down there for so long, they bought everything, and then they doubled their order, and they bought a second of everything, and then they had it put on pallets, and they shipped it down to Antarctica. It had to go, it took, it, they bought it two months before we got there. So all of our gear was already down there. So you had to have everything that you know, could supply you if something broke. If your camera went down, you had to be able to fix it and get another one going. Because sometimes you were lucky enough to link up with another filmmaker that was down there on the same project with you and you could cross shoot and you could get better coverage. But sometimes you're doing it all by yourself. And how, and how do you connect with other people? I'm sort of imagining everyone sort of goes down together and you go to a rendezvous point and get all your gear. Is that accurate? Kind of. It was very different. So the first time that I went down to Antarctica, um, first you have to go through a pretty exhaustive battery of um, physical tests. You have to go and you meet with a doctor and there's a huge checklist that they're given. Um, that they have to run you through to make sure that you're physically fit, that your teeth are good. Um, they need to basically make sure that you're not going to go bad when you're down there and they're not going to have to have to ship you out because it's very expensive to get people in and out when they're not scheduled to be in and out. So you go through this um, physical test, you pass, then you have to get down to New Zealand, which just going to New Zealand would be a big trip because it's several flights, you know, it's, you're looking at 24, 36 hours to get all the way down to Christchurch in New Zealand. Right. And the beauty then is when you show up, you could show up just in your underwear because they are preparing you for an environment that is so foreboding and so harsh that you don't have anything in your closet that you could wear there. They need to give you everything. So wow. because it is New Zealand and they have an abundance of sheep, they're very big on their uh, wool and they have this company called Smart Wool, which makes really nice athletic wool clothing. They give you a base layer. They give you a sheepskin to sleep on. You're given a, a sheepskin in addition to two sleeping mattresses that you'll sleep on when you're camping out on the ice. The boots that I had that I wore probably weighed 15 pounds each. And I remember I'd wore those boots for two weeks and when the trip was done, I walked down a hallway and I felt like an Olympic sprinter because I'd been training with 15 pounds on each foot for the past month. So they give you all this gear, all this bulk, and then you step onto an Air Force plane. The US Air Force does all the flying in and out of Antarctica and you fly on this big military plane, a Hercules or a C-17. If the weather's bad, they might yo-yo turn around and then you have to go back to New Zealand but if the weather's good they land on skis and the door blasts open and you're just blinded by light and cold and it is like you are on another planet. That is amazing and you're wearing these, these heavy boots and you're just sort of in this Davy Jones locker type scene until your eyes adjust I guess. 
Yeah, it's like you're an observer in your own body. Very strange. So as a filmmaker, what are the challenges you face out there? I mean, you, you open the door to this plane and here you are, you've got to got to get your gear you got to make sure the batteries somehow stay charged in this cold yeah yeah so you get out of that that big c17 and then you get on another like people mover kind of vehicle with these massive tires it rolls over ice and it comes and picks everybody up from the plane and then i went and linked up with all my camera equipment which was down there at the new zealand base so there's some science bases down there and the science base is kind of like a refrigerator reversed there are actual refrigerator doors on it, and it keeps the warm in and the cold out. What is and, warm? Is warm relative? Well, there are four days a year where I think it gets to freezing in Antarctica, so 32 degrees, but the rest of the year it's well below that. And then the more that you get into the interior, um, it gets cold quite quickly. Where we were camping, um, it would you know, be roughly negative 40 um, without the wind. Uh, so it's, I mean, it, it's disgustingly cold. I remember when we, we were out there on the ice and it was, yeah, it was one of those negative 40s. And you're down there in the summertime, so the sun never sets either. So it is, it is incredibly surreal that it's just always daylight. If you woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning, you'd have to put sunglasses on if you needed to step out of your tent because it is so bright. And I remember it was one of these weird nights where it was maybe 2 or 3 in the morning. I was out filming for whatever reason. It was negative 40-ish, and my camera monitor just went white. I couldn't see anything else. The entire monitor just died, and then I looked at the buttons, and they're still red. It still seems to be recording, but it was so cold that the monitor just did this kind of ghosting, and I couldn't even see what I was filming anymore. Oh, wow. And so at that point, you're, and do you remember what you were filming? Yes. Yeah. So essentially what they were doing down there is so, you know, I got all my camera equipment together at the New Zealand science base and then we headed out on these tractors. They're called Haglins and they look like tanks without any weapons on them and they can go through water and they can go through ice and they can go through crevasses. I believe they're engineered in Scandinavia and we're in these little tanks. They don't move very fast, you know, maybe 10, 12 miles an hour, moving, moving quite slowly um, across a piece of ice that is about a mile thick and the size of France. So a massive piece of ice. Now, now we're driving, we've left the science base, we're in this convoy of about three or four different Haglins and we're heading out and what they're going to try to do is they want to study the floor underneath this massive piece of ice to see if they can learn about how our climate has changed in the past to forecast how it might be changing in the future. But the first thing first is they have to go out to this remote spot and carve, like pioneers, carve a remote base where planes can get in and out of and they can set up science for the next couple of years. So we were kind of these pioneers going out there onto this ice space to try to create um, a place, a foothold, where they can return to for the next couple of years to do this research. Um, that is absolutely mind-blowing and in my mind they they've like they dig out this space and they've created what looks like a John Carpenter movie that they just hang out in yeah it's real Mad Max style out there it's, it's quite bizarre I remember they had to create an airstrip for this plane to come into because the snow is quite soft so they have to pack it down and there was this one guy who was in charge of building the airstrip for a big old plane and he had a snowmobile and a little um, something to kind of tamp down the snow behind him, like a little sled behind him. And he made this landing strip for a huge plane all by himself, just by driving back and forth down this runway for four days nonstop. You know, he, he slept, but he would just go back and forth. And he, really, you know, what was just barren wasteland, by the end, we had some wall tents up and it was set up. They brought a bunch of fuel out. Um, for future expeditions out there. And you know, by the end of it, we were set up for future science. Wow, so, and this is just one part of your assignment. So you go film this for a couple days and then you head off to another part of Antarctica? Yeah, yeah, so I, I was out there living in this tent for three weeks once we got out there. And it was so crazy. And I remember we were in those Haglins on the way out there and it was, like I said, completely flat. 
and it's like you're on a frozen lake and you can see nothing but ice in every direction and we're driving out and they of course being scientists have this very specific place in their mind where they want to drill where the ocean floor converges and it's completely perfect and you know I don't understand that because I'm not a scientist and I don't have all the, the, the gear that they have and I'm just sitting in this tractor and we've been driving for several days to get to this spot and I remember it's turning and I turned to the, the main guy and I said I'm going crazy here like what is it gonna be like when we get where we're going what's it gonna look like and he said it's gonna look like right here it didn't change at all um, but it was it was gnarly I remember you know it, the crazy thing about Antarctica is it's a desert which, which is strange because it's full of snow and ice. Right, it's but wet. It's, 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 yeah, well, it seems it's, it's frozen. It's not wet. You rarely see any, like, um, you, can, you could basically go down there in, like, canvas because it's never going to get wet and, you know, you're not going to have to deal with cold and wet fabric. It's just going to be cold. That's and bizarre. I remember, it's very strange. And... What happens though is that it'll get incredibly windy because there are no trees in any direction. You know, there are no trees on the continent, period. So when that wind starts to kick up, it can be so powerful that it lifts the snow and you can't see five feet away from you. So when we would get these snowstorms that would come through and they'd come through maybe once a week, we would have to go into our tents and they would run a string from one tent to the next if you had to leave your tent so you wouldn't lose your way as you're going from one spot to the next. But you're really supposed to stay inside your tent, sometimes for days at a time. Because if you wander off in the wrong direction, if I started to scream, you couldn't hear me because that wind is howling so powerfully. And you just wander off in an abyss and not long before you're dead. So if you have to stay in your tent for days, mm -hmm. how do you go to the bathroom? That's a great question, Joe. That is a really good question, and, and I get it uh, a lot, and I had that same question when I was going down there. And, and toilet experiences in Antarctica are just as strange as everything else is down there. Um, you know, the first big thing is because it is intended for science and they see the continent as pristine, you cannot take shit in Antarctica. You have to take your shit out of Antarctica. So they collect everything. They could either process it. They, they, they have a way at the science bases to process urine, but, uh -huh. but poop, like they're bringing it out. And all of, when we were out there in this remote camp, we had this tent that the New Zealanders called the peas and the poos tent. And you'd go in there and they had separate buckets for poos and peas. And I don't know about you, I don't know how your plumbing works, but sometimes mine just want to do the same thing at the same time. So like trying to isolate which goes into which bucket. And if you are in that, the poos and the pee tents after you know, morning coffee, and you're, you're then feeling kind of nauseous, and maybe you want to vomit, and you're wondering like, well, which bucket is the vomit going to go into? Because I'm not feeling very good right now. No, but, so that's like if you can go to the pees and the poos tent. If you can't, because there is an ice storm, and you stay in your tent and then you have a couple bottles that you pee into because even if you had to go pee in the middle of the night you're not leaving that tent because it takes about 20 minutes to get into the system of three sleeping bags and three sleeping mats and then that sheepskin that you're laying on so you're just going to stay in there and if anything you know the, you could just take the warm pee bottle and throw it down by your feet and they might be a little bit warmer too but if you have to take a poo during a, a blizzard? I don't know, that never happened to me. <laughs> I guess you'd have to risk your life and follow that string and try to find the pee in Putin. That is amazing. I swear, we haven't had an astronaut on, but I'm, I'm also gonna ask the astronauts, like how, how does that work? But it never occurred to me that they would bring it out, you know? Yeah, they bring it out. And the crazy thing is when we got back, like that, I've had some pretty gnarly assignments going all over the world. like to conflict zones, to war zones, crazy places. But for me, that was the hardest assignment I've ever had just because I'm doing it all by myself. You know, I'm running the audio for multiple people. I'm doing all the cinematography for my story. I'm developing a story, you know, with a beginning, middle and end and multiple people and they're scientists. So you have to make it digestible and compelling. And I'm recharging batteries 
with a generator. I remember one morning I woke up and I'm, I felt like I was so cool. I'm like, I'm up before everybody else. I am going to make coffee and then I'm going to film them waking up and it'll be a nice shot. So I wake up early, I make the coffee, I drink the coffee really quickly using a French press and then I go to clean out the coffee press and in like 30 seconds the grinds had frozen into place in the French press so I couldn't dislodge the little French press puck that, that presses down. So I had to boil more water, which means melting more snow, which is another 30 minutes. People were waking up, I'm missing my shot. And that's just to clean out the coffee grinds. And, and, and that's one component of, for me, what was one of the most hardcore assignments that, it, that, I've, <laughs> that I've ever had. You know, when you think about camping, so often it comes with the sounds of the forest or the sounds of the desert, or there's, mm. you know, there's a lot of stuff going on at night that if you're not used to sleeping in a tent, can make it hard to sleep, but it kind of sounds like down there, there there really isn't a lot of wildlife running in and out of camp. So, what does it sound like? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a hollowness. It's an absence of sound. Um, I thought initially that I would be seeing penguins, that I would be seeing whales, but that wildlife only exists if you're on the perimeter of the continent, if you're where the ice meets the ocean. Where I was, I didn't see any animals for several weeks. There were no animals out there at all. Somebody said they saw a bird fly over one time. I didn't see it. I don't believe it. Um, so the sounds are cracking of the ice and shifting and blowing cold wind and kind of the hollow grumbling of ice that is shifting as you're laying there. It really, it's a very strange thing. And then, you know, as you're in your tent, you have a tent mate. So you might hear some, uh, some snoring if you're unlucky, or if it was chilly night, you might hear a little bit more explosive noises. What a disconcerting feeling that must be. Yeah, it was gnarly. I remember one night I got kind of, and you kind of go uh, a little weird in your mind, a little funny, um, because you're out there all alone. And, you know, I was we're there with, other scientists, but like as a filmmaker, you're not really bouncing ideas off of a small community of filmmakers like you normally do. Um, so you're kind of an outsider in their community. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember I got on, I had a snowmobile that, I, that they assigned me down there, and I got off on this one direction and I just drove as fast as I could into, a, into the abyss, into just nothingness, and then I got off, and then I just was, I was like, there was nothing. Every direction that I looked, there was, there was nobody. Every step that I took, I might have been the first person to ever step there. And I've, I've had a chance to go to all these incredible places around the world, but nothing is quite that unique where you really feel like a visitor. Nowhere else on Earth have I felt more like a visitor that shouldn't be there than when I was in that part of Antarctica. Let's talk a little about some of the visitors that shouldn't be in Antarctica. Uh, this isn't a paranormal show or a conspiracy show, despite our one Bigfoot episode, which I thought was quite fun. Um, I like that episode a lot, Joe. I thought that was great. Thank you. Yeah, Jay did a good job. Uh, but visitors to Antarctica, there, there is some lore dating back to the post-World War II period about secret alien bases in the mountains in the middle of Antarctica. Um, I don't know that I'll ever talk to anyone else who's been to the middle of Antarctica, so... Is that something that scientists ever joke about around the campfire, so to speak? Hmm. I mean, I was with the, the Kiwi scientists, and they are very pragmatic. And I actually struggled with them a little bit because, you know, you want in television world, you want things to be exciting. And I remember we had some, like, a, the tractor um, had some issues, and it broke down, and we're trying to get there. And these guys are out trying to fix it with, like, their hands getting frostbite and it was so intense and I was and I was like terrified and I said what's going on right now this is pretty scary and they'd say like oh yeah it's less than ideal it's less than ideal <laughs> come on give me something a little punchier than that a little punchier than that but um so these scientists I would say were very pragmatic um, and very utilitarian but that being said I don't know I mean it's a massive continent I've seen some strange stuff um, and I think there's so much space out there that it would be easy enough to kind of create your own little enclave and disappear. I guess the trick would be, you know, there's nothing down there to sustain you. You couldn't, you couldn't grow. I mean, unless you were able to build greenhouses 
but then how do you heat this you know structure like the crazy thing down there was when we had tractors and they had to refuel the tractors they didn't turn the tractors off they never turn anything off down there they just hot fuel it and put more jet fuel they use jet fuel because it doesn't coagulate when it's cold quite the way that regular fuel does that sounds so they, safe Super safe. It's not, not a lot of safe about being down in Antarctica, but but I guess I mean I, I believe in, in in a lot of things, and and I believe in anything until proven otherwise. But I would think it would be hard to continue to sustain yourself down there unless you had you need help. You need like government help that wants to keep your secrets quiet. But um, it's definitely not a place hospitable to humans. So there's a point, um, and this is just one of your sort of outings into Antarctica that we're talking about here, but is there a point when you say, okay, I've, I've got the footage I need. I mean, these Kiwi scientists, they're not particularly helpful, but I think I made a, a compelling story out of this um, and you're ready to leave. Is that a moment of celebration or are you just sort of lost? Is your mind sort of just gone at that point? You're kind of on survival mode, you know, really to tell you the truth. You're, you're just, trying to get through every day and, and you know one day after the next is when you're out there for several weeks and it is such a challenging job you can't focus on the end because it seems so far away I remember when we got back to the science base you can't like you can't leave though like even if I felt like my story is good like I can't you know go check in to the next available room at the Hilton like there's, there's no to, uber there's no uber there's no like uh, can you get me a flight out of here you're stuck you have to wait until those tractors are going to head back um, so you just keep kind of collecting story like if I feel like I've got the story then I'll focus on like maybe we can do some time lapses some slow motion stuff you know some more stylized kind of insert shots um, but I remember getting back and my face by that point um, was the skin of my face was kind of peeling off um, because of the cold and um, you know I, I, I'd lost circulate I lost feeling in, in several of my toes that took about two years I'm surprised the feeling came back um, but I'd lost feeling in a couple of my toes and um, took a couple of years to get the, that circulation back um, and I remember just being elated and overjoyed by the fact that I made it like for me I was like holy shit I was like this is above and beyond you know because he's not only you know doing all the filmmaking but you're also like you're putting up your own tent you're part of the expedition as well and you're being expected to you know produce something that's going to go on primetime television so in a way do you feel like you entered that expedition as an outsider to their community and, and then by the time you left you earn a little street cred with these scientists i hope so I hope they don't talk bad about me. Who knows? No, I, I think I, you generally, like I've been on a lot of these long deployments, whether it's with a military organization or scientists, and you need to tell their story in a compelling way. And that might be different than they think that the story should be told, you know, because we get all nerded out on details that we think are exciting and the average person might not really care that much about. Um, so you kind of have to guide the story and collect the moments that you think are going to be the most compelling for your audience but you can't be a jerk out there you know you can't be the guy that's pissing off the crew because it's going to be a very long journey and they're just not going to give you what you want if they don't like you they're going to shut down and you're not going to get a good story so you kind of have to operate in that kind of gray zone where you're friendly you know after the end of the day when you're done filming you'd hang out and you'd have a beer with them um, but during the day you're also kind of asking the harder questions or the questions that they might not be asking themselves. Mm. Lasting impressions of Antarctica when you when you close your mind and you think about that continent, where does your mind go? Well, I, for me, my favorite moment is, you know, I mentioned that I didn't see any wildlife when I was down there on my first trip to Antarctica. Um, I got a chance to go back shortly thereafter and I was by the edge of the continent on the ocean that is actual water ocean and, and not frozen and there I did get a chance to see these penguins and, and I had this experience with penguins that really is a lasting impression of, of what I experienced down in Antarctica and really you know kind of warmed my heart I remember seeing these penguins and like I said it's, it's flat and frozen in most directions and I was down there filming 
and I see these penguins and they're maybe a mile, a mile and a half away. They're very far away, mm -hmm. but I saw them. Um, and because penguins have no predators when they're on ice or land, they really have no fear. If they, now, if they jump into the ocean, they're going to be terrified of a killer whale. Um, they might try to munch them up. But when they're on the ice, they're just curious. So, you know, by this time, 20 minutes had passed, and these penguins had been charging towards me, directly towards me for 20 minutes, and they're still, you know, maybe a mile away. It's clear that they're moving and that they're coming in this direction. This but is hilarious. What their intentions are is still unknown. Okay. So, so they're still, you know, I noticed, okay, it looks like they're coming over here. And then I went back and, you know, I continued filming whatever I was filming. And then I, sure enough, I look over and, you know, about 45 minutes, it took about 45 minutes, these penguins, and they're these little Adelie penguins. They're not as big as the emperor penguins. They're pretty small. They're probably like 12 inches tall. Um, they wander up, they're, they're running, it's full sprint. I don't know, they've got incredible cardio because they've been running for the entire 45 minute stretch. Huh. And they got up there, there was probably maybe 12 of them, just a small little group. And they stopped, they got really close, they stopped about five feet away, and then it was just the standoff. You know, it was like a deer in the headlights. For me and from them, we're just, you know, staring at each other. It felt like an eternity, it was probably like 60 seconds. <laughs> and then they just kept running. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw them again. They just ran off into the abyss again. <laughs> they had important penguin shit to do. They were like, well, this isn't worth our time. You are not interesting enough to them. Nope. Wow. Nope. Emmy nominated director. Not good enough for penguins. It's a tough sell down there. You got to be pretty charismatic to uh, enchant a penguin. That's hilarious. Uh, what, what can we learn from Antarctica? Uh, you know, it's a place that most of us will never go, but it's so close to the climate and it feels the impact of what we do up here as humans. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we can learn a lot about Antarctica and I think that, you know, scientists could tell you about how it's an indicator for how the rest of the world can change when that ice starts to melt and projections for what the world would look like and what cities would go underwater if that ice does melt. Um, so that's all very helpful, but you know, what really stands out to me is this feeling of camaraderie. You know, how when you are on an ice sheet and you are reliant on one another for survival, you know, what somebody thinks about a specific issue is not important at all. When you're just trying to get through the day, when you're losing uh, feeling in your feet and you need to desperately warm them up so you don't get frostbite, the person that's helping you out is just another human there to help you get by and to help you survive. What they believe in any specific issue is completely irrelevant. And you're down there to do a job. You're going to work together. Yes, you can have your own opinions and you should have your own opinions because otherwise it's quite boring. But this feeling of unity of working together in Antarctica really stood out to me because, you know, we were down there with, with people that were, you know, granola crunching scientists from universities and then other people that worked on oil rigs that were setting up this massive tower that was going to drill through the ice and there were no disputes there was never you know different groups everybody at the end of the day when it was time to eat they would just mingle and we were one unit so for me i think that is a big thing that antarctica can teach you it's like no one lives down there full-time no one should be down there full-time and if you are going to be down there you need the help of other people otherwise you will not make it I think it's a really good lesson. It's a timely lesson right now, um, considering everything that we as Americans, you and I are going through, although many of our listeners are overseas. Um, must be nice up there, but <laughs> I, wish, I wish I could come see you guys. I know, I know, it's so strange. You must be feeling this too, because you are a travel writer and you know, you're kind of in the same boat that I am. And it, our world has been really shaken to its core. Yeah, it has. Um, but in a way, it has also been a positive experience because the way that the travel writing industry works, is, as you're well aware, is it's a lot of tit for tat. It's a lot of um, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. And so you end up on these, these press junkets that are great. And, and you know, it's uh, like a tourism board will fly you to wherever. Let's say the last one I went on was to St. Bart's. Mm -hmm. So 
tourism board in St. Martin's emails me, do you want to come down to the Caribbean, spend a few days? This was December of 2019. Mm -hmm. Shit, yeah, who, who wouldn't? Sounds great. I'll mm -hmm. go to an island full of French people and great food, and it's just the best time ever. Um, but I had a moment where I was sitting on a, a yacht in St. Bart's with other travel writers. We're eating Doritos, mm -hmm. and we're surrounded by multi-million dollar mega yachts and mm -hmm. models and all the champagne you can want. And I just thought to myself, how did I get here? Because this, this isn't really what I'm about. I mean... First of all, I'm hungry because these Doritos are not filling it up. <laughs> second of all, like I'm not learning anything. And so the time off with COVID has given me a chance to sort of reflect and refocus my writing and my work on learning and exploration and how do we better humanity rather than where can I go and get a cool picture on Instagram? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. I think, you know, and I'm guilty of it too at times, is we see the world as like a checklist. You know, I need to be to this many countries and mm -hmm. go to this spot and get this photograph. And you really do lose sight of, of why you were there. And I remember, you know, when I was traveling internationally a lot, for, I did it for 10 years, you know, different stories. I'd do one story a month. And if I didn't have a boarding pass for my next trip by the time I got home, then I started to have anxiety and a panic attack. Um, so you kind of get to this place where you're not living in the moment. And I think that, yeah, by, by being forced to sideline yourself, um, it really does make you focus on the importance of being present when you're in a place and, and just make, you know, maybe we won't travel quite as much as we did, but each travel experience that we have can be that much more meaningful and that much more relevant because you can be focused on being in the moment. Yeah, I'm already thinking about the world when it opens up again and, and what I want to do and it has shifted from a checklist of you know, how many places can I go this year to maybe I could just spend like a month or two in one spot mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. so I'm, I'm looking forward to that and before we wrap up here I do want to talk to you about your travel channel show uh, Lost in the Wild it's just such a, a unique and cool show and it had vibes of Expedition Unknown and vibes of Unsolved Mysteries kind of mesh together. Um, tell people a little bit about Lost in the Wild and where that got started and, and where it went. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Lost in the Wild, is, it's a series, it's a TV series. Um, myself and friend of your pod, Kinga Phillips, um, we host this show and you know we were both travelers and explorers and we'd gone to all these crazy places like Antarctica or the Bering Sea. And, you know, we came home with stories to tell, like the stories that we've been talking about here. But not everybody does come home. And we were amazed to start to dig into this and find that every country has a number of stories about people that have gone on an adventure, they'd gone on a hiking trip or maybe a religious quest, a pilgrimage, um, and they disappeared. And why they disappeared is quite strange. Um, it's really easy when somebody goes missing in the wild to just say that they fell in the river. If you want to get rid of somebody, if somebody saw something that they shouldn't have seen, that they would just get rid of the person. So what the series did is we went to some of the most remote places on the planet following in the footsteps of these people that disappeared and we interviewed key witnesses and talked to their parents and went to the spot where they disappeared and brought out some new evidence along the way. It's unreal. Um, if you guys have a chance, check that out. I think you can stream it on the, the Travel Channel app if you have a smart TV or their website. Um, I guess since we kind of both work for them, we should know more. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think um, it's on Amazon as well. And I think you can watch it. You can rent it on YouTube. Such a cool show. Uh, and I hope you guys are able to, to get another season in the books at some point because I, I was hooked. And it's it's got to be one of the best travel shows I've seen in a long time. Oh, right on, Joe. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. I think, you know, just being authentic and talking to the parents of the kids and really going in there with a genuine 
belief that we should travel the world. You know, when it's when it's safe to travel the world, we should be traveling the world, and we should be meeting other people and exploring other cultures because it makes us better human beings. It makes us relate to one another. It makes us more empathetic. Um, but it's not fair when somebody goes seeking those experiences and they don't come home. You know, they they see something they shouldn't see. You know, we went to places where. There's a lot of drug trafficking, and you know they're trying to bring their tourism industry up in the country, and a couple tourists wander into the wrong spot. So for me, it was just a really meaningful show, um, you know, because international travel is just really not happening right now. We're kind of at a at a pause moment, but um, but thank you. I'm glad you liked the show. Absolutely, everybody, you should give JJ a follow on Instagram. It's a great way to keep up with him. It's at j dot j dot Kelly with two e's. Uh, JJ, yeah. thank you so much for coming on the Get Lost podcast. Right on, Joe. I appreciate the show. I like all the guests that you bring, and thanks so much for having me on today. Look forward to doing another episode sometime with you because we, we want to hear about Jesus, for a significant historical figure for sure. Yeah, uh, that, that's a good one. That, that, we'll talk about that next time. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. The Get Lost Podcast is a production of Sold Outside Exploration Company. Follow us on Instagram at Get Lost Podcast or visit getlostpod.com. By the way, be sure to tell your friends about the show.